0: Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird. Today, you'll be hearing an interview that Sam and I did this past week with Chal Ravens. She is a premier freelance music journalist writing about electronic music and how club culture intersects with arts and politics. You can find her writing all over the internet in places like The Guardian, Resident Advisor, DJ Mag, Navarra Media, and so on. Ravens is also the host of the podcast Relevant Parties, where she profiles independent record labels like Exit Records, Ed Banger, Mahogany Music, and many others. Sam and I wanted to talk with Ravens about the podcast, but admittedly, we were just really excited to chat with Ravens about anything. She's been a longtime supporter of our podcast since very early on, and Sam and I are both big fans of her work. I think the one thing that I really appreciate about Chal is that, whether it's in her articles or on Twitter... She is refreshingly a music journalist who covers music through a lens that considers the world outside the music industry, whether that means the political or climate change, or like we do on this podcast, keeping an eye on the money, where it's going, and what it all means. So, of course, we were really excited to have her on. Before the interview, though, just a quick reminder that you can subscribe to our newsletter at moneyfornothing.substack. Follow us on Twitter at M4N Podcast email us at money for nothing podcast at gmail and of course help spread the good word of money for nothing by rating and reviewing us okay here's our interview with chal ravens enjoy <laughs> Just 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 yeah, so i guess just like real real simply like just to kick things off just tell us a bit about your podcast relevant parties and what motivated you to like work on this project
1: so in fact it was uh um, <laughs> it was carhart who came to me with the idea um shout out to philip and mikhail who um are based in berlin and have actually they've been at Carhartt for ages and have done a lot of like you know within the like spectrum of what a kind of brand partnership can be they've done some really good stuff um they've worked with some like amazing people particularly from detroit which is where like the brand is originally from they've done like you know like um roller discos with moody mountain and good stuff um yeah i'm I'm, I'm familiar with with,
0: like the like working within the working within the uh the confines of the brand having uh (laughs) worked at rbma for for a year so
1: (laughs) yeah well you know shout out rbma ultimately like they gave loads of people loads of money to do stuff that wouldn't have happened otherwise i mean yeah
2: some of the best shows i've ever seen were just that corporate largesse
1: like (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) r.i.p yeah i kind of it's like a small r.i.p like it's a tentative one but it's also yeah like they um yeah they gave me money to do nice things and carhart came with me uh, came to me with this project and they kind of had it mapped out a little bit already to be honest they had this idea for a six part podcast about independent labels kind of straightforward really and i think at first i was even thinking like i mean i was i was definitely keen for it but i i suppose just the fact that it wasn't my idea <laughs> i was like oh well okay um but they were very supportive in terms of like, you know, they could actually push it and put it out there and help me kind of get it places. Anyway, um I was meant to uh go around and actually meet these people in their, you know, real offices in wherever, like LA and stuff. Uh And then the pandemic happened. So then the entire project became obviously over the internet, which I'm kind of glad about in a way, because I think it would have been pretty unnecessary to fly to LA just to interview Peanut Butter Wolf. But yeah so that was the first series and then the second series I uh had a little bit more well I I had a lot more um kind of control over who was in each episode yeah I I suppose ultimately the second series is a little bit more like my taste um overall yeah and I mean I think like it's not like some of these labels hadn't been written about a lot before but it was you know it's a chance to kind of go deep and speak to people who've really just been around a long time and they don't necessarily get interviewed themselves and they have certain stories. I mean, on the other hand, I think, um, you know, it's not a surprise to realize that dudes who run record labels are like, they're kind of, they're often quite, quite low key. (laughs) Um, These are like the level headed guys who have to cope with crazy egos all the time. And some of them are, uh, you know, somewhat like reticent almost, um, not all of them, not not busy P, for example. But yeah, it was um it was it was cool to kind of have that long form space to try to draw out kind of deeper stuff from some of these guys who, you know, have probably been asked the same questions a lot of times as well. Um to be clear, they were all men until the last episode of the second series as well, which is clearly one of the reasons why they asked me to present.
0: <laughs> it's interesting because you said that they've obviously answered these questions like a million times but was there something specific that you that you were trying to sort of spot, spotlight in profiling these like different like independent labels
1: yeah i think so i mean for me i think that you know a lot of labels that have that kind of hardcore following or have been around a while um like ninja tune is an example it's like it's a funny one they they release all kinds of music and they've been around for ages but they they do have like a certain kind of consistent fan there's a there's a type of buyer who will buy you know kind of any ninja tune record like on site you know I know people like that um and so because of that I think I just wanted to get away from anything well there's some like nerdy stuff in there but I wanted to get away from the kind of like chronological like Anaraki stuff where possible and also like there's just not time like you can't talk about every artist that you know stone's throw have ever put out it's just is too much so on one hand i was interested in like bigger kind of thematic stuff like you know some of the stuff that we're probably going to talk about in this episode like what an independent label actually is and what it's for and so on and then obviously on the other hand it's just like trying to get some personality into it and just trying to find out like who these people are and and maybe this element of like why would you do this as a job because it's it's not easy to convert that kind of passion into lucre. you know it just doesn't really happen for a lot of people um so yeah trying to get some like personalities and 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 stuff and and reflections I mean some of the better ones ultimately for, for me at least were the the conversations where people were quite quite candid about where things had gone wrong you know and like um Speaking to like Sam at Ghostly and Bill Kulagas at Pan, you know they were they were quite candid about like uh, like Sam talked about the, like the dip, like what happens after the first like five years after you're cool and then you're just established and then you're just there as a label and people aren't that like, interested in you anymore because you're not the hot new thing. Like what do you do with that? Where what kind of you know how do you actually adapt after um, maybe being like symbolic of a certain like musical moment? um and bill was you know um yeah i think like had had a pretty hard time to be honest like it was really difficult to keep uh pan running through the pandemic to like support the artists i think i think label bosses take on sometimes quite a lot of personal responsibility to their artists who are you know artists and maybe themselves like precarious in all ways um so yeah maybe a a little bit of that kind of candor it was what i was looking for and sometimes got and sometimes didn't
2: no the the personality thing i think is so crucial and and it was something that that came through so strongly because i mean like i loved i really 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 enjoyed listening to these podcasts um and and one of the i mean among these like uh, amazing stories and kind of the spotlight uh that the way that it, it like illuminates these musical histories that like i was aware of or like had experienced like Ed banger like ripped through my college campus, (laughs) like absolutely changed the way like social life functioned. The music that that label released for like that
1: was such a big one for me to do as well. To be honest, because it you know that's like it was just a time capsule, and yeah, just really I don't know that one just really hit me. It was I got into dance music um through through the kind of ed banger trajectory as well. Errol Alcan blockhouse justice all of that so yeah
2: so 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 but like in addition to these like uh, the ways that this perspective allows you to like get get a new a a new sense of like these, these musical histories I mean I thought it was just tremendously productive kind of like in in the aggregate right like the sense of focusing being able to put these stories side by side in this really really interesting way and how that kind of like there's like a the the independent label and the independent label kind of manager as like this almost like composite character (laughs) for me that like emerged out of all of these different um all of these different stories and 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 really like highlights how crucial they are and and and, you know um we talk kind of a lot of times about kind of like broad structures of of musical history here and like and and one of the the most fascinating things about is is the kind of independent labels as this like Recurrent phenomena throughout musical history, right? Like super important in the early '30s and '40s, super important again in the '50s, again in like the '70s and the '80s, like, and and just how they keep reemerging, and and this was really really fascinating because it was also this composite story of of, of the independent label at a moment when the music industry was undergoing this just profound transformation, um, and and hearing their perspectives on it really helped disaggregate that transition in a really interesting way that it wasn't like a switch went and it went from physical to digital it's actually this like much more complicated like multi-stage process that different people kind of navigated in in really different ways
1: yeah for sure and I think the thing is that almost none of them really had any particular similarities you know like What they had in common was that they were reasonably successful or very successful independent labels, and that was kind of it. Like, the way that they had actually achieved that success and maintained it is, like, they were just all really different. They all had really different attitudes to what they were doing, you know. Like, Sam at Ghostly, he's a business brain, you know. He's an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Like, he turned Ghostly into a brand, and whereas, like, Peanut Butter Wolf, like... He just wants to collect records, you know. He just wants to do like hang out and do, you know, his own weird shit in his own weird way. And the fact that they've all made it work in their different ways, it it's hard to say exactly why. You know, it's like I think if anything, it just comes down to the sheer like just the dedication of that one person saying, "No, I'm just going to keep doing it rather than stop doing it." And that, yeah, I mean, the the a lot of them have been like near bankruptcy you know um i think on sound in particular i think maybe they even went bust completely or i can't remember now um i think maybe adrian had to just like sell off a lot of stuff there was some funny story about it but yeah i mean they've they've had to really just dig in and kind of yeah roll with the punches in terms of that transition and they've they dealt with it in different ways and not all of them have been early adopters like ninja Tune, an interesting example because Ninja Tune, like, run by Cold Cut, who were always into technology, like, their first big hits, like, before they had Ninja Tune, um, were, like, these tracks that were, so there was a track that was, like, basically, like, the first kind of UK, hit, like, hip-hop track in terms of production, like, a, a cut-up, breaks cut-up, and then they did the remix of Eric B and Rakeem. I don't know if that's, like, a hit in America, but, like, the Cold Cut remix of Eric B and Rakeem was, like, a hit in the UK, and it kind of brought... Um, it brought Eric B and Rakim over here a bit but basically they were always really ahead in tech they were always into like audio visual stuff and like you know releasing things in different formats and all of all of this stuff which has given them the edge a lot but then just because you're good at software and stuff it doesn't mean that you can control you know the tidal wave of kind of streaming platforms and file sharing and so on and so even then i i don't think that there's an easy way to um like for any of them to have prepared themselves for for what changed i mean with with ghostly maybe it's a bit different because i don't know i feel feel like it's i don't feel like ghostly could have ever failed he's just like he's just a business brain (laughs) so to to talk a little bit about about um, or or get your
2: thoughts on kind of like the role of of the independent label specifically in kind of dance music culture cuz i mean these labels are not exclusively dance labels but they that very <laughs> very broad umbrella electronic slash dance labels but like i'd say like a majority of them kind of fit solidly in that camp and and my sense um from from, from listening to them and, and from kind of also from from kind of my own research uh, audio documentary I, I produced for Pop Worldwide about UK dance music, I don't know, six years ago now. Um, is that is that, yeah, that that because of like the specific dynamics of like the economy of dance music, um, that labels play a really and independent labels play a really different role that kind of gives them access to certain kinds of of um of like revenue streams that like might not be true for like, I don't know, an indie rock label in the late 90s early 2000s
1: i'm sure that probably is true is there a specific revenue stream that you're thinking of
2: well i guess i was just thinking about like kind of the relationship between a i guess like the fact that a lot of them it seemed like are djs so their ability to like <laughs> turn the records that they're making into cash by performing it seems like different um and then also i guess you know not exclusively but uh it seemed that like maybe um certain kinds of like high quality audio and or vinyl sales were stickier in that world than i don't know like they were for a small like k records or something like a small indie um just because like dj's were still purchasing large numbers of vinyl records i mean I remember like early grime like you know the famous stories about wiley like making significant amounts of money from white labels in the early 2000s we were like a rock record even like at one that's kind of going off whatever that means like isn't selling like physical copies in the same way as late. yeah
1: yeah for sure I mean dance music it's like there's this you know it kind of creates this like para industry of you know people who then play those records because playing the records is the live experience right um so if you made the record like you like they the producers rarely get to like perform the record that like really especially now like that's just not it's it's quite rare um but they might also have a DJ career which obviously involves them buying loads of other people's records so there's this like kind of permanent chain I mean I think there's also the fact that like I mean historically the label has always been more important than the artist in dance music if you go back to the uh especially in the early 90s there's so-called faceless technobolics era as um one person uh, memorably described it um but you know that that, there was a big uh desire to be anonymous for a lot of labor for a lot of producers you know it was kind of culty and cool and it was supposed to be like anti-celebrity and anti-whatever right so you would get the label representing like a sound a direction a city whatever and you might get a load of artists on there who have multiple aliases they only release one record under one alias it's got two tracks whatever and the artists themselves kind of are you know uh, um not exactly interchangeable but they're they're not um they don't necessarily have fixed identities but the label would have the fixed identity so you go into the record shop and some artists get their own divider but labels get their divider so like it kind of stands in for that i guess so i think I think in that sense I mean dance culture is deeply tied to the label and labels are the entity that has the longevity you know you can you can come and go in terms of your contribution to the culture and the acceleration of the you know the the sonic moment whatever um but it might be that your time lasts a few years and you kind of are influential and change the parameters of what that sound is doing but the label will exist after you and release someone else after you um I guess that's the same with like other genres too, but I'm, I, I don't I know. I feel like maybe I'm just trying to think if like kind of a lot of more indie rock type labels would be more attached to a sound and then wouldn't necessarily change over time. But I'm, this is not, no longer my area, so <laughs> can't compare. Well,
2: I mean, I also think what you're saying kind of about like representing a city or a scene is just like, um, I don't necessarily fully have a grasp on how this would function or how this would would change things, but also, like, the sense of, like, a a label representing a scene and that that they're operating fairly close to a set of, like, circuits that are actually making money, (laughs) that clubs make money, that DJs make money, and that record labels are kind of in, in a closer conversation with those spaces, it seems like, in dance music than they are, like, in another type of music where kind of you know you go out and tour or you just don't have that that um that close relationship with audience feedback maybe
1: yeah i mean uh you know just to take one example burghain has a label it's called oscar ton the artists that are on that label play at burghain like it's there's a like pure symbiosis going on there and then it's pretty typical to see like you know some lineup at corsica studios in london like recently they had uh 18 years of hyperdub. uh before that that recently there was 10 years of local action you know or like even club nights that kind of go on forever that um you know rep- represent a specific scene and then also have a label like rupture or something drum and bass label and, and club nights gone on for ages and so it all kind of feeds back so then like the promoter and the label boss are kind of the same person they probably also are DJing and maybe they also make tracks so yeah it's definitely close I mean it's probably it's really that proximity to the live event which is like that's that's the funnel for the cash ultimately yeah
2: and you know people like uh it's easier to get people in for DJs than for live bands um yeah because they usually sound better <laughs> sorry my sorry all our, our live band fans out there <laughs>
1: well they might do i mean there are plenty of venues where that is not the case but yeah
2: <laughs> okay so 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 kind of um and again you, this is you know there's a couple outliers like on you is as, as a much older label but but my sense is that like um for a lot of these labels it kind of the story starts and maybe like a, a good to kind of establish like a little bit of a baseline for this change which is kind of like the independent label in the m- early to mid 90s um and it, and it seems mm-hmm. and, and and you know correct me if I'm wrong but it's kind of um the ones that that kind of popped to mind is uh, uh Stone Throw and uh Ninja Tune I mean the Ninja Tune did Ninja Tune started in the late '80s Cold Cut did. 91. 91. so in both cases these are groups uh, labels that kind of find a market niche a sound a style and then kind of just like fill it um and find kind of in a, like a kind of almost like a classic independent label way find that like there are significant groups of people out there who are willing to buy the records and i think it's interesting you know both those labels are, are like more adjacent to what's happening in the mainstream it seems like than some of the some some of the other ones um like it, partially because they, they they act more like uh more like a smaller version of a traditional mm-hmm. record label, because it seems like that's how the that system was kind of set up then. So so one of the things that we talk about a lot in terms of this digital transition, right, is that in, you know, it, previously, clearly the major labels had better distribution, had more, more access to more stores. But like at, at a fundamental level, once you got the product into the record store, like the two like physical commodities... Kind of, we're on an even playing field, right? Like, I could buy a uh, Ninja Tune record, or I could buy a Warner Bros. record, and like, they're both a physical mm. thing in mm. the store, and they kind of they, they kind of operate similarly at some level. And that one of the things that's really changed with the kind of uh platformization of all things with this <laughs> expansion of digital, um or maybe not necessarily the expansion into digital, but the uh the move into digital and then the ways that the major labels have kind of like regained control over this musical ecosystem in so many ways is that now if you're an indie and you release a label like you're it's a fundamentally different playing field right like you the, the relationship to the platforms based on whether you're in, on an indie or on a major seems like it's very different in many ways your ability to disseminated your ability to get playlists your ability to get all these different things as a, that's, if that's kind of like a broad Yo, theory yeah, yeah. which may be totally totally incorrect like my, my sense and maybe i'm like fitting uh little bits of evidence into this you know uh in, into the theory is that you know like in this earlier period uh before that was still true where there's still major label consolidation but like you know the, the, the that they're not nearly as centralized as they uh, get to be in, in only a, sh- a few short years. That like these, you know, there's a sense that like if you were a big indie, if you had big hits, like you could really operate. You were not going to take on the major labels. You're not going to storm the citadel, but you could like you could establish like a pretty solid fiefdom. And uh, my sense is that like in that period, a lot of indie labels, um, of, of a variety of ways, like did.
1: Yeah, um, I would maybe, just to kind of go back to something that you said at the beginning that I I mean, I'm not entirely sure that it would be the case that, like, once the product hit the shelves in, say, the early 90s, that the um, Warner Brothers record and the, was it Stone's third that was your example or whatever your example was, were, were kind of, uh, would appear the same. Because I think also you got to remember that, like, the the way that that record gets to you. I mean, if you were shopping for a Ninja Tune record, let's say, or Stone's is like a better example in, in some ways, um, you're probably in a kind of shop that sells that stuff and those types of record shops that were a little bit more, not just indie record shops, but like kind of hip-hop-y record shops or, you know, a record shop like um, Sounds of the Universe in London, which is has a kind of line in like house with kind of like jazz like flavors and vintage reissues and dub and reggae and whatever and like a certain type of collector would end up there and then all of that was mediated at the time through how you discover music generally through like you know um specific kind of music press and specific I don't know like fanzines or just the people that you knew like radio pirate radio or college radio or um you know early like bulletin boards whatever so i feel like in a way it's not so much that the indies can't compete as easily because they can't i mean you're right like obviously they can't find the same kind of virtual shelf space as the majors um for for a typical record now but it's also like it's also that their their whole territory is kind of diminished anyway because like the the IRL spaces are diminished and the kind of Uh, like actual underground feels diminished. You know what I mean? Like there are fewer cool weird record shops generally. So your chances of just like stumbling on some new cool indie stuff are kind of, it's not like it's not totally easy to just go on band camp and find all of that. But I think, you know, while the sort of mediated channels of finding music that there were in the nineties were limited and probably, you know, um for um, you know, prejudiced. You could also still find your people and find that stuff once you kind of knew a bit what you wanted. And I do wonder if maybe now, uh, the kind of flattening of all of that, which I think is kind of what you're getting at the idea that like the majors take up so much space on, you know, Spotify, etc that it's kind of hard to find the weirder stuff. I I guess now that's just Yeah, it's like it's a loss of that space rather than a kind of the majors taking up any more space than they already did, maybe, because they were always taking up loads of space in the mainstream where you didn't need to used to have to go. Does that make any sense?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like a like a there's a there's a a coherence to this kind of alternate economy. Yeah. That allowed like once you were in, you could circulate within it without having to kind of you know, even if you think about the money, right, with Spotify, right, like part of your money, if, even if you are just streaming mm. independent music on Spotify, part of that money, because it's, you know, all gets thrown into one big pool and then distributed by streams, part of your money yeah. is going to the majors. It has to.
1: Wild. Also, um, I think worth remembering that some of the more like successful, um, like, you know, you were talking about Stone's Throw kind of existing in sort of mainstream adjacent uh, spaces, but like, like maybe musically, right? Like, you know, having someone like Madlib who is kind of, yeah, like, as as big as it gets while being underground, in, in a sense. Um, but then there are a lot of, like, indie labels who have had, like, that one massive breakout that has just bankrolled them for years, like... It's like it's the burial effect, right? Like Burial has paid for a lot of the cool stuff that Hyperdev has put out probably for the last half many years. Adele on XL. Like, imagine how many, like, imagine how much money they <laughs> yeah. spent doing because XL are like famous for doing um talent development. That's the, that's kind of phrase on the Artist development. For ages, they find people develop them whatever that means and sometimes they sign them that must cost them so much money and it's it's Adele money for sure you know they wouldn't be able to do any of that I think there are a few um indie labels that have had that kind of luck um I don't know some someone like um like Bonobo on Ninja Tune I mean that guy does units and like syncs licensing all of this stuff so yeah that's a factor
0: well, th- that kind of brings up like a couple of questions for me. Like, I mean, what I, w- I wanted to go back to just sort of like the flattening and there just like, being like le- kind of like less space to just sort of like discover, um, say, like a label or like a new artist. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, for newer labels that you covered in your podcast, like, I mean, I don't want to say not newer labels, but like more recent that have kind of had to go through these like technological changes. So I'm thinking like maybe like Pan, like, you know, like in your experience, like how or like, in talking to them you know how have they been able to sort of then become like pretty well known and, and relatively successful in this sort of like I know they started in 2008 but I mean they kind of really went. they were kind of in the midst of all this technological changes and like, moved to streaming and everything like you know and talking to them like how did they then become like discovered and kind of who they are was it this like one artist or was it you know what was the process
1: I mean I feel like to be honest for like a label like Pan they are not I mean, Bill is like it's 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 kind of one guy, you know, it's not I don't think they even see themselves as like, oh, this is how we very successfully navigated this shift in the industry. I think they're just like white knuckling the whole thing, to be honest. And they're like Pam is an amazing label that is massively respected in kind of weirdo underground circles, has gets the nod from like. You know extremely cool fashion people and art people you know that like it's an art label in a lot of ways like that's definitely Bill's kind of milieu, but like are they making loads of money? Are they like a massively successful business? are they just just killing it not not exactly you know I don't think they're I don't think they see themselves like that. I think it's actually very difficult to 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 run a label like that I mean, I suppose different opportunities open up to you when you have that kind of music like you know pan pan is not a label that can do um so ghostly have a full-time person who deals with sync and licensing um ninja tune definitely have at least one i'm sure um and if you think of how much money having one person on that can bring for those types of labels but those labels they put out a lot of music that is the kind of music that might get synced to be honest like Ghostly put out records that are um often like instrumental, kind of like, you know, sort of ambient ones or sort of like beats, instrumental type thing. um Often with a sort of like heavy sort of like emotional affect, potentially. W- like, what does, what can Pan do on that front? Like, it's a lot harder for them to f- like sync with an ad. But then they do have artists who are, you know, someone like Earth Eater is getting artist residencies is getting um fashion collaborations you know doing like like weird runway music for you know some like extreme fashion design or whatever so i suppose there's like you know that's some part of how they can create success or at least the kind of outside um appearance of success is like that critical nod or that um you know, success in like a uh, high-end kind of art and fashion world. But yeah, I don't think those those types of labels see themselves as massively successful. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, of course. Of course, they're not mass- massively successful. But I think, I, yeah, it just sounds like it really isn't like a single formula, you know, there has to be some, some, today there has to be some sort of combination of like, you know, a little bit of luck, having a good ear, knowing the right people, being in the right well, place, like having the right yeah. exposure, you know. No, yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think to be honest, yeah, you're, you're right. Like, actually, what it is, I mean, the thing that, the one thing that does tie all of these labels together, um, is that it's one person who is listening for stuff. Um, Not mahogany music, bit different because Moody Man is obviously like somewhere in the background, like (laughs) kind of in charge, but kind of like not actually running the label. But I think it's the consistency of one person who has. Their taste, and they are following that and believing in it mm-hmm. and I mean that is a really difficult thing to attempt to replicate or to be confident that you can replicate um but I think ultimately it's just that it's like you know you know how like everything is curated now it's like almost its own cliche that's like here's this like cocktail menu that's like curated by some guest mixologist or whatever, but like label bosses they kind of actually are curators like you they have I don't even mean like a kind of <laughs> like you know MoMA or sort of Charles Saatchi type of collector they're like a, a collector who's collected some weird thing you know like some, they've got this weird collection of like like taxidermy and you know, I don't know like weird medical instruments from the 18th century or something and they want to show you them all and they've collected them put them in a cabinet but after a while you're like yeah this this guy has a bit of a, an ear for this particular thing like this these things do tie together all of these different artists that he's like so select- like I'm just saying he sorry because it's true in all of these <laughs> cases really um so I think that I guess that is it and that is so useless as a piece of business advice isn't it and a piece of advice generally just be like cool and know what's good I mean, like what are you gonna do with that? no I
0: think that's the, I think that's exactly how everybody should like live their life i, I, yeah. I okay. <laughs> no well so 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 so, so like a, a secondary question to something else you said, you know, you were kind of talking about how like burial or bonobo with their just absolute massive success in a way have sort of you know quote unquote carried their labels a little bit yeah, a little bit but so that brings up the question you know, like can you maybe discuss the changing nature of independent labels now, like kind of in a time where like kind of anyone can upload their music to a platform and promote themselves you know kind of play the devil's advocate then like why would Burial or Bonobo like stay with their labels and i mean obviously I, I i believe that independent labels still play a vitally important role but maybe you can kind of discuss you know that that dynamic and that complexity
1: yeah i suppose it kind of it extends out from this idea that it's like one person's taste is that so i guess if independent labels have historically their mission has been well certainly this wave to like escape the stranglehold of the major label system um and particularly to build like their own distribution networks right um which in turn kind of allows artists to make work that isn't isn't commercial that is like you know whatever they want it to be um and obviously now you could and plenty of people do simply make their own music and put it on Bandcamp like the the number of hoops through which you need to jump has been reduced to one essentially it's it's you you would think like i'm sure if you'd explained that to somebody 15 20 years ago about Bandcamp they would perhaps think okay that really is the end of labels like why would you need one but there's so much stuff and having people choose some stuff that you might like that fits together i just i that would never not be at least useful Um, and I think also there's there are two other things it's like the fact that the label itself creates like potentially a community of the people who are you know on and near to the label and also people who are listening to it who discover each other as fans which I think is quite hard to do now for various reasons but you know to find other people who like that music I think the, a label can help group things together which might otherwise or which might literally be disparate but some for some reason they go together but then I don't think that necessarily ensures like what I, I don't think that necessarily like fixes the role of the label in terms of what they literally do for an artist like I don't think because what I'm describing could could also be like making a playlist like why would you also need to go through a label and then give them some of your like extremely small income um and I wanted to like mention this kind of emerging trend I I'm not entirely sure like how many companies are doing this but I've kind of heard of a few um at different levels of the sort of dance electronic underground semi-underground where basically um instead of the label taking on the artist. And connecting them with, you know, uh, all the ways to put the product on the shelf, plus, um, perhaps connecting them with, um, PR and like people who can do like their, um, artwork and all, all the kind of functions that a label might do. Um, what I'm hearing about now is actually management companies taking on their, their artists as kind of like mini, you know, businesses in themselves. So the artists themselves becomes a kind of like standalone, like brand or company who can then choose to do various types of things that earn the money, like playing a show, um, doing a brand partnership, actually signing a record deal. And the management will provide them with their like creative team. So that could be like, you know, graphic designers or stylists, whatever, who would work with that artist on any particular aspect of their kind of brand going forward, or whatever like thing that artist might want to do, including that artist might want to launch their own label to put their own music out on that label, which is a which would be funded by the shows that they've done. Uh, and then they, that management agency would kind of work closely with like their favorite couple of PR agencies. They're either like a maybe a sort of sister PR agency, or you know, pretty close close stuff. And then the label is just this, like, it's kind of kept at arm's length, I guess. And it I guess it just functions to kind of press and distribute a record and, I guess, um, help to kind of pump out a media campaign to some extent, or they've already got the PR agency. Or like almost like um, branding
0: in a sense. It's like a recognizable, you know, like a Nike or something, you know, it's like if I see that, like, you know, Pan is like putting out this record or or whatever, you know, it it's almost sort of. I don't know it's a seal of approval in a sense
1: yeah yeah definitely but then it's like but the artist and in this particular system the artists and their management have full control of their creative so they what they look like and what they what their artwork is and how they're presenting themselves they're not letting the label really get involved in that which usually would be a label job you know because it's important for a label often for that to kind of fit together and then the ultimate like result of that is that you know the artist is a sort of um, it doesn't get like sort of sucked into the the label whether that's like a bad like corporate blob major label or a sort of chaotic like where are my royalties <laughs> indie label. And they have much more control, but still ultimately management take 20% of everything the artist ever earns, right? And I don't I mean it's not like a massively radical change, it's not that different, but it's just this new idea that kind of leaves the label in this slightly, like, diminished position, I guess, so they're putting out the record, they're just, like, doing some logistics, but, like, then what is the label boss kind of doing? Because in a weird way, that that management agency has already done quite a lot of, like, curating, and the label boss is, like, just making, like, another playlist of things that they want to do. I don't know. It doesn't... I don't... They're not worried about this. I don't really care. It's whatever. But I think it's... Um, a bit of a sign of the times in terms of like a response to the collapse in record sales.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because I mean, and, and I'd love to, you know, not necessarily naming names, but like get a sense of like the size of the artists. Cause what that strikes me as like a, a set of moves that are, um, you know, I don't have like an intimate understanding of this, but like that that that's more akin to what yeah. a major yeah. star at this point, how they yeah. act with the record labels, you know, it's like, no one's telling Beyonce or Gaga <laughs> when to that? release a record or who, which record to release in a way that I think that, like... Um, well, that's it. it would thriller t- it would was produced under, like... From, from that like, Thriller was produced under, like... Oh, sorry. Um, you know, like, in, in the 80s, 90s, labels were still telling even major stars what yep. to do.
1: Yep. Um, the... I feel like... <laughs> I I know I know these things because of like conversations that are like set, you know, it's not like any of it's secret, but you know, um, the kind of artists that would be like part of this type of system include like the type of dance artist slash DJ who would be on the cover of a dance magazine. So like that size. Sure. I mean, how big is that though? It's not the same as Beyonce being on the cover of Vogue, is it? But, um... It's, it's some, it's some money. It's big money in terms of their bookings and stuff. So, and also this agency might have, I don't know, 30 people that they're working with.
2: Right.
0: That's really, really yeah, interesting. I'm, I'm interested interesting. in, I'm interested in these management like companies, like who, like wh- who they are and like who's funding them. And like, well,
1: they, all... they fund themselves because if you yeah. had 20 reasonably successful DJs on your books and you were taking 20% of even just their bookings. Well, it's their total earnings, isn't it? So, like, I don't know if you're on the cover of a dance magazine and then you play a big festival lineup this year, you're probably getting like five figures for that. They take, you know, management are taking their twenty percent times that by. Like, 20 I'll take twenty percent of TS. That's the budget.
2: Earnings. Like, I'll do it. It'll be hard. It'll be hard, but I'll do it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Tiësto might have his own separate, like he's got a shell company as well, or something. I don't know,
0: offshore shell company. Yeah, um, fully yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I, have, I mean, I know this is kind of a new trend, but just have you talked to like any label bosses about this, or like label owners, and like kind of like what their feeling is about about this new trend?
1: I haven't actually. No, I n- I kind of know it through other kind of grapevine uh, uh, things, but yeah, I should I should discuss that. Well, you know what? Actually, no, that's not true in a way because um. Uh, th- this is a model that's like totally publicly known. Um, so via, uh, my good friend Tom Lee, who runs the label Local Action, uh, I also know, um, a guy called Andy Musgrave, who runs an agency called Supernature, and he manages, um, the rapper AJ Tracy. And AJ, Tr- with AJ Tracy, he, uh, the, the system that they came up with to launch AJ was they, is that they, H- hired a venue, a good venue in East London, XOYO. They hired it for, like, I think several nights. They put AJ Tracy on and they made a big event. They did it all themselves. It was, like, no interference from the venue or whatever. It was just, like, we're doing this. It's our thing. They did, like, I don't know, three nights. AJ Tracy was already, like, an underground smash, like, coming up in this kind of era of self-made, um, self-made kind of new grime. And they use that money to go into the studio and record his album. And then they put that album out on on a label that was AJ Tracy's own label. So there is no label. There is a manager who... And then like a, a process to get some money to record the thing and put it out on AJ's label, his own label, which didn't exist other than to put out that record and what, future records, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, the... It's also interesting because again, like the the different kind of music scenes and the way that they function. Like I feel like that 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 story makes a lot of of sense, um, and a lot of sense to me. no you know, n- maybe not like as an off the jump situation, but like, um, in the you know the the U.S. label economy, like uh, rappers having their own labels is is pretty common. Um, or it kind of or it kind of reminds me of almost like like late like late 90s or 2000s when like you
0: your band would have a hit and then like i remember like okay this is a really funny example but like live biscuit getting their own label but it's really just a subsidiary of like exactly. of like warner or something yeah. exactly
1: yeah but this is different because there was never a label
0: right right mm. yeah it's so interesting
1: and i could see that happening more but the thing is if you were aj tracy and that was your situation what would be the next thing you'd think of signing somebody else I think.
2: <laughs> yeah. You
1: probably would, right? You'd be like, well, this is like, I have a label now. So I'll like put, put out records by my friends. So I don't know. They're, they're, they're three-headed um, hydras, aren't they, labels?
2: Go- going back to what you were saying before about like, <laughs> you you kind of saying about like, um, at some level it's like, you know, the business plan is like, <laughs> be cool and do cool <laughs> shit.
1: <laughs> Come on, it's so simple.
2: For it, I'm very for it.
1: But but like at at another level,
2: like it, it's one of the things that you know put in in somewhat more boring terms is like. Mo- as this industry generally moves from like a industrial industry, right? Like the problem is making records and moving them around. Where, like, even, like, we, we, you know, we, we did an episode about labels in the 50s, um, where, um, yeah. and, and eight, this is true also of indies in the 80s, right? Where, like, having a big hit could often be a kiss of death because, like, you had to label up to, you know, not label up, you have to level up to, like, produce enough records. If all of a sudden you're selling 500,000 records, like, yeah. it can put all kinds of monetary stress and bring on debt. And it's like, really, like, a lot of labels have gone under from a big hit. And, as you move from this like industrial model to like a very like standard, like postmodern post-industrial model where it like, it is a knowledge economy and it is about like making connections and juxtaposing things um, in ways that are both good, good and bad. Like part of what labels in a weird way, like even the majors were always saying, right. Was like we have experience and that experience is valuable and like, they were also had like a lot of exploitative contracts that allowed them to make money. But like, and I think a lot of people kind of like, were like, your experience is not that valuable. But in, in like, in a weird way, like, yeah, really understanding the music business at like a deep level of like, what is cool? What's going to go off? What, and especially in dance music, like the the, what kinds of songs hit a dance floor and how that, changes your understanding of like what a new song you know getting those kind of ears that that people talk about you know like being a real record person being able to hear a hit like that's all kind of almost like a little like woo woo but also like you could like quantify you know like like the the embedded set of knowledge and the way that knowledge allows you to like move through these systems so it actually like makes a like a tremendous amount of sense that in this problem in this world where like the problem is not how do we move records the problem is we have too much music that those other set of skills that labels always had and that other set of functions that labels always had like label as tastemaker label as brand label as like helping an artist configure exactly the thing that they're trying to do so that it connects with a broader universe outside of the one in between their ears right like All of that is, like, incredibly valuable. It's just, like, a weird set of, like, different soft skills. Mm.
1: Yeah, although also I guess that makes it seem a lot like um, starting a record label is, like, you are some person who likes music and you try to find some music that you want to release and if you're lucky you find some good stuff. But obviously a lot of labels kind of emerge more organically where someone is you know for example they're DJing and they have um they get sent some music or they have a friend who's making music that they think is really good and they're like oh I'd really like to release this and they kind of know what works because they're already playing it or because they're already like making it or I I feel like there's I mean I'm only talking about dance music really but when you're at that ground level I guess it's not even about like taking a on what's cool it's kind of you just I mean it doesn't even need to be cool does it it's, it just needs to appeal to enough people to you know generate enough of a, a, a kind of interest buzz income whatever to work um there lots there's lots of uncool music being released um but yeah I feel like maybe there's a kind of more organic shall we say way of, of doing this where you're just you're just in the scene, right? And you're like, oh, maybe I'll release some records. And to an extent, that's quite easy to do. Actually, though, the thing about, you know, talking about product and not being able to gear up to make enough product if you do have a hit, you can't even gear up to make enough product at all at the moment. Like, sure, the way that vinyl's comeback has destroyed <laughs> indie vinyl is, I mean, it really, that we're getting to the point now where there are a lot of, like, Otherwise very like popular, well functioning, decent sales, small dance labels who are like, I just give up. Like, you know, the the pressing plant is telling me twelve months because like there's a deluxe Olivia Rodrigo double LP in there and they've like they're taking six months to do that or something. And they're just like, I can't, what's the point? And especially with dance music where it's like, you can't just leave like four tracks on the shelf for a year by someone who's only got one record out so far. You know, it's not sure. it's not fair to them as much as anything. That's so interesting. Um, no, it, yeah. it, time and Time to start it, pressing it,
0: vinyl in our garage
1: what's in your garage no, I said time garage to st-
0: no yeah sorry, sorry yeah garage garage yeah <laughs> i said i was being sarcastic i was like time to start pressing our own vinyl in our garage well it's
1: funny isn't it because like why is why is this happening it's because all of the pressing plants got shut down who made that happen oh it's the major labels oh who wants to use them now the major labels well there's only two pressing plants left great good one guys no. I mean you know all about this stuff. I think you've probably even talked about this on the show before.
2: A little bit, a little bit. I mean that yeah. two and, and and Jack Whites uh third man oh, records. Thank you
1: Jack. <laughs> Doing it for the culture.
2: Uh, famously. No. Yeah. Um
1: <laughs> no but but that that
2: point about kind of the organic nature It's it's also like but another level it, it, it's it's you know in addition to being like (laughs) i'm just throwing up buzzwords now but like in addition to being like a postmodern economy but if you think it's also like you know the data economy everyone talks about but like you know if that 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 ground level information is is valuable in and of itself and it's really interesting to think about like especially in in dance music like the 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 value of being in a position to like gather that information it reminds me a lot we did a uh episode i guess one of one of the like the most interesting episodes i loved talking um about about this stuff about about king records which is like r&b and country yeah great episode Uh, thank you indie right uh in in the 50s and he bought records bought used records that were worn out from jukeboxes (laughs) and was like able to be like yo these records are getting worn out (laughs) like these ones this like stream and he's like I bet if I made more records that sound just like that, (laughs) these (laughs) records that are getting played to death, literally, like, I can make some money. And just being in a position to, like, within a a functional musical economy, right, like, uh, so that you can pick up on those, like, market signals almost and be like, more of that, please. That's what people actually want, like, is incredibly valuable. That makes total sense to me.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, It's funny with dance music and my—I don't know—my sort of where I'm at with just music generally, dance music, whatever. Because I guess there is always a kind of top level, you know. There's like the top of the underground, if you like. So when I talk about like big acts in dance music, I definitely don't mean like Tiësto and I don't know who else is there. Dead Mouse, those ones—I don't know. Don't I don't know about those ones? You know, that's like a whole other world. I mean, like um bicep or something like people who are actually really big and make loads of money and tour a lot and have live shows and av and all this kind of stuff and i guess there is like a a, there are obviously people obviously there are people um a and r people in labels who like are trying to work out what will be popular and what would work and how to do it but like i don't know there's also within that very same ecosystem that produces those people bicep started off writing a blog about dance music there are loads of people who like just don't give a shit about any of that you know like they just they like they are they are underground so therefore they like things you know based on finding them new or exciting or whatever so i yeah i I feel quite divorced from that you know i'm not an i'm not really like i don't work in the industry i'm a writer so some of this stuff feels quite um just like alien to me in a way that kind of like a and R brain or sure you know it's like when you accidentally well maybe not accidentally when you find yourself backstage at a festival (laughs) and you realize that everyone is having incredibly boring conversations (laughs) about like yeah all of this stuff and not dancing and um yeah there are like two 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 things happening in one ecosystem in a way that like if you worked for a major everyone would just it's obvious what the name of the game is, you know, get a number one. But in my kind of ecosystem, um, there are two opposing like drives, you know, make money, but also try and be cool. So as we kind of
2: start wrapping up there, there is like a a very specific kind of moment that that occurred in a lot of these interviews that um, really like (laughs) I found like changed the way I thought about I guess I guess a lot a lot of like the recent history of the music industry, and that was like the very different narrative that a lot of these independent labels had on like I would say two thousand and two to two thousand and eight roughly speaking, where like you know the classic story and this one that we kind of butt up against all the time is like this is a period of collapse, right? this is the free fall of the majors, and what was. I guess at some level, like my gut was like, oh yeah, it makes sense that, that that these indie labels kind of had a different experience of it, but it seemed to be like fairly uniform across a lot of the discussions that either things didn't change that much or even that kind of the, the increased le- level of, of of access and notoriety that the internet provided actually made those like, made it a, a pretty good time
1: for a lot of those labels. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's funny because I think maybe because of the slight dance focus, um, you know, two thousand and two to two thousand and eight is um, very much like the dog end of like a rapidly accelerating like time sonically and aesthetically in dance music. So I think a little bit of that is uh, the feeling that things weren't very good, like artistically, like definitely with. So with exit, you know, Debridge left drum and vase behind because, you know, famously the early two thousands are um not the best years of drum and vase. And he wanted to go off and do something <laughs> that was like artistically still interesting, and yet he found that like people weren't really coming along for the ride with him, etc. Um and I imagine that is the same for a few others, you know, like the the innovation was maybe slowing a bit because you had a sort of superstar DJ era that was like fading out and people were into indie rock again blah 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 then again like who is the exception to that Ed Banger because Ed Banger are on MySpace and they're like actually a voice of, of a oh, I was gonna say voice of a generation yeah but you know they're like they actually were of that generation so in a way for them it's like they're not they're obviously not even comparing what what the 90s could have been if they were a label they're just like getting on with it and you know printing like colorful graphic t-shirts and meeting their top eight friends on myspace and taking like red eye pictures in clubs and stuff so yeah i i, I feel like they just <laughs> <it>. <laughs> indie sleaze oh god i can't believe they're making it come back and giving it a whole name it's so stupid um i mean ghostly too though yeah, right? yeah but, Isn't you, but the, you know with ghostly the, i think the- it's like i wonder if like I think for for Sam, it was more like, like he, he talks in detail about like the dip, you know, and how kind of depressing it is when you had this cool project that everyone was like talking about and writing about and you were having these big hits and then you're just like a bit out in the cold. But, you know, if you were cool five years ago, then something else has come along. So it's kind of a natural process. I'm not entirely sure that it's to do with like the wider industry so much as like, cyclical kind of trends and stuff um so i think maybe just that era just happened to be you know like you could argue maybe i'm trying to think what came out on ninja tune that period for example but at that time ninja tune um had big dada which is a sort of um i don't know what they'd call it really it's not entirely a sister label but it's like an an attached label, but run separately, and they were signing like Wiley and loads of cool kind of grime stuff at the time, so for them that was good years so i don't I don't know i yeah it might it may just be this um small sample size is giving us a different like read on it. I was trying to think about if like Indies really had such a horrible noughties as majors, and I'm not really sure because you know there's there's the whole like. I'm sure I'm sure we've talked about it on this show. Like uh the idea that file sharing ruined music is like very like arguably not really true because the nineties was actually like a fake boom, right? Because like CDs were overpriced and everyone was buying CDs to replace their records and da-da-da. And then the major labels didn't catch up. All but all of that is like I don't know, the the people who are really, really into music also are the people who pirate the most music, right? They're like, There's there's data to show that the people who buy the most records are also the people who pirate the most records. So in a sense, I feel like the early noughties would have been a good time for indies just through that lens because the more you pirate, the more into music you are generally, the more music you find and the more music you want to buy. And then it was also like era of like weird blog spots posting um, like uh out of print albums and stuff and then eventually those getting reissued and then eventually artists um you know new artists being inspired by those records and I don't know it's hard for me to say because that's my like that's my entry into music so I I can't really sense like how different that was to sort of five years earlier when I was still listening to the Spice Girls (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's a question that, like, obviously, I, I we'd I have to do more research on. But, the, I, you know, it's something that we kind of brought up in our last episode that, you know, w- there are these moments when, say, like, big labels or, like, as we were mentioning in our last episode, like, big tech, when it struggles, it does kind of create these, like, sort of momentary openings. And, like, you mm. know, just from my memory, it does seem like there was a sort of opening where you were starting to see uh, indie bands like suddenly like being on the radio or like being you know starting to like get like a lot of more coverage that like i was had i had known as being like super underground and all of a sudden you know i don't know I'm thinking yeah. like like a modest mouse or something like that all of a sudden yeah yeah so it do, it does. Yeah, maybe
1: that is related you know like just majors being in an absolute like just head scrambled because they don't understand how to use an ipod and then there's like a weird opening for yeah, just like, I don't know, Constellation Records or something to come along and like make, you know, make quite obscure bands relatively popular. Also, there was that whole thing of like, um, oh, I don't know, maybe that would always be the case. I feel like there were a few like TV shows and films and stuff that kind of went went indie, right? And Sure. Gave, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a good
2: point. Garden State soundtrack. <laughs> yeah,
1: I know. And I was thinking that I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't even like any of the Garden State music, really. But uh, yeah, maybe there was a weird window there where the sort of the indie things came along and but then maybe that's also a sort of natural process. Like you could say it's the same with, you know, hip hop generally, like sometimes ground level actual scenes of people are like a necessary feeding ground for major labels who obviously have no original ideas and need other people to come up with things that they can rehash. I mean, maybe that's just a natural pendulum swing. I mean you can see it now with um to some extent the kind of scene around like hyper pop and you know 100 gecks in the US and PC music over here a lot of those sounds are making their way into like actual commercial music often produced by the actual same people to be fair um but but there are I guess there are inevitable openings for that stuff because it's needed because it's fertilizer
2: sure I mean also like what you're saying about like you know the majors not knowing how to use you know iPods which is definitely you know the the, our friend of the pod, David Turner's, uh, I believe it is, oh, friend of the pod. I love David. Hi, David. Um, you know, <laughs> the, has talked to me, you know, the, that that like the 99, uh, 99 cent download for, for singles is like, it's a crazy deal. Uh, that like that yeah. is like, you know, that's when the majors like <laughs> really proved they didn't understand anything and like gave away the shop, basically. But like at the same time, yeah, like it, just in terms of like the ability to break through these strangleholds that these 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 indies that that you know, and I'm also thinking you know about like like the mall punk band, like Epitaph Records, <laughs> like as like a whole entirely different scene. As I'm like outing my seventh and eighth grade musical tastes, uh, <laughs> we're also like just the ability, you know, through MySpace, through these alternate forms of like press, that like at some level, like like you're pointing out, like. They had always been oriented towards. And so there's this moment where they maybe like have the field to themselves a little bit um, before majors and their marketing budgets are able to like restructure, you know, to really get a foothold on on social media. Yeah.
1: And I suppose if you're thinking about like, where would that happen now or next? I mean, it's difficult because you know subculture happens out in the open now you know it's it's, but you can barely even really call it subculture by any kind of traditional like interpretation of of what that means um and so it's like it's easy for mr a and r to find you know what the kids like or what is kind of bubbling up but it also kind of isn't like it's funny like with tiktok TikTok works by finding out what you like and giving it to you. And it knows if you're not like a 15 year old who loves like hundred gecks, you know, it's not going to give you that. And I just wonder, like, about what like remaining kind of buttresses there are against that kind of, you know, like ca- kind of cannibalizing major label force. Like, how can, how can underground scenes and basically like kids, you know, as in like the kids, carve out some space for themselves and I, I I think this is a bit relevant in terms of like so you know I think I think you were mentioning earlier or, you, or you'd mentioned in your original email to me this idea that like dance music can be uh a little bit insulated from some of the um other like industry uh sort of challenges because it relies on the live experience so like people have to go to raves for it to function and and therefore that is you know a, some kind of like Um, in funnel for money. But since the pandemic, you know, we've been hearing a lot now um, from promoters and clubs about really like poor attendance, like poor ticket sales, sometimes high ticket sales, and then people don't show up. Like people are not definitely in, in the UK or in London, people aren't going to things anymore. And I do worry a little bit about a kind of almost like a bit of a lost generation because like two and a half years is a long time in dance music in terms of like that's a whole new cohort of like 18 year old ravers or well maybe 21 for you but like 18 year old ravers right that's when you go to uni and maybe like go to fabric for the first time or whatever and kind of get involved and I just have this odd feeling that like especially with everything being like just drastically more expensive your prospects being so much worse now for an 18 year old than they were when I was 18 that like the spaces where these new things are cultivated and shared between actual people are really, really limited and basically end up happening entirely on the internet. And I really don't want to sound like I'm shouting at a cloud, but it's just it it does seem like, you know, this link to venues and to real things, whether it's been like record shops or clubs or whatever or even just like owning owning buildings and stuff. It's such a recurring theme in terms of how independent culture can like sort of stabilize and protect itself. And I am sort of alarmed that there don't seem to be many places for like 18-year-olds to do stuff now. Maybe I just sound like an absolute granny. No, but... no, no, no.
0: I don't think. No, I think it's like a real concern. I mean, like you know, may- maybe there's some like eighteen year old listening that will listen to this and be like, yeah. "Yeah, we're we're going out to the like the random forest field and like putting, you know, bringing a generator right. and everything." And to, I, to I be to be honest, to be honest with you, actually, like. um like i I do know some like zoomers that that do do that that are kind of almost like recreating like almost like 80s 90s style like rave shit going on you know (laughs) like really super diy but no i think it is i think it is a real concern i don't think that you know you're like shouting out a cloud because yeah like we all just like we're we're staring at our phones for like a year and a half you know and like yeah like what is the effect of that uh, on culture and like i guess it's kind of just like a real watch this space sort of situation
2: i mean at the same time uh complex tells me that soundcloud rap is back so maybe there's hope for the future is it
1: like soundcloud (laughs) rap like wave wave two or something because we had that we did that is it different now
2: yeah i think like wave 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 two except like the waves are so short it's just like an oscillation (laughs) wave six but just the waves have all been three months long no it's kind of the same thing again just uh hopefully without the drug did you
1: read the thing um I'm afraid I've forgotten his name, but Simon Reynolds' son writes about this scene. Really? Yeah. Unfortunately for Simon Reynolds, he's he's, he's birthed another music journalist, which must be <laughs> galling, <correctly. laughs> Um But, well, I mean, I think... I'm pretty sure um, his... Uh, mother is also, also writes about music so i think her name is joy press um yeah i can't remember his name but he wrote a quite interesting feature about like soundcloud rap stuff and it's 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 good somebody needs to go in there and find out that stuff not gonna be me but you know <laughs> there are but you know like it proves that there are depths there are there are like weird weird places where um weird things can happen even though it's like soundcloud isn't like a private zone but it is um you know, there are, like, small communities in there, I guess. But it's not the same as actually meeting people, is it, you know?
0: Yeah, no, that is, that is true. Yeah, but yeah, and I, I've always kind of had this, like, sort of uh, pet theory that actually this is kind of what happened, what I was referencing earlier, where, like, somewhere, like, in the, like, early to, early to mid-2000s, like, this level of underground just got completely, like, gobbled up. By, like, mm. streaming and the internet and everything. Like, kind of mm. the whole Modest Mouse like, reference and everything like that. And so that there's, like, really... Like, I have friends who are in, like, really, like, you know, three-chord, like, punk bands that, like, somehow can, like, t- tour Japan and, like, you know, stay at people's houses and everything. But it's, like, so <laughs> DIY and underground and, like, that's so like, maximum rock and roll thing. And, like, that's kind of, like, the new level of the underground, you know? And then there's just <laughs> kind of, like, everything that's on the internet, basically, you know? But...
1: You know, you know what I would actually maybe say as an exception that could be, you know, oh, look, we haven't talked about Web3 at all or anything. We haven't talked about NFTs. Great. No, I was
2: just great. enjoying No, that. we're not going to. We're not going to.
1: <laughs> but I was going to, I was going to just throw in Discord or Discord-like things because I don't, I don't think a label Discord would necessarily be cool, but I do think that that is where stuff happens because, um, you need, um, an element of these Web3 people have a name for like a third, third? space no no yeah maybe thirds sp- or like like not like private but like gate or gated or you know what I mean like there is there are worlds within worlds so there's like a private area where you can therefore say things that like you can test things out without having to like say them on Twitter, for example so I I do think maybe a bit of discord is um is good you know the NTS discord is really good
0: Oh, there's an NTS Discord? I the get on NTS that.
1: Radio, they got rid of the old school chat and they launched a Discord. And for about three hours, I was like, stupid, hate it, not going to do it. And then I went on and it was absolutely amazing. It was so good. It's uh, got like different channels for different things. It's got channels that just permanently have all the track lists on. It's got like, obviously you can DM people so you could actually make friends with people. It's good.
0: Nice. I'll have to join it. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm. I listen to NTS probably every single day. So totally, to, yeah. ultimate background music, isn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely. definitely. In, in the best way. <laughs> yeah, no, the best no, way fuck. for sure, for sure.
0: <laughs> well, Joel, we've had you. We've had you a long time, and so I really appreciate you coming on. I, I do want to leave a space open, though. Like, do you have any comments or or any I, like thoughts that you would like to express about the sort of like web three like DAO space in regards to the music industry and you could totally say no and we don't have to talk about it but i mean like i just wanted to go ahead and like kind of like leave it leave that open if you did want to have if you do have any Mm. thoughts about it and like how it could possibly you know like you said maybe be um you know a space for something more sustainable or maybe something that's like a little bit you know uh completely autonomous from the (laughs) you know yeah yeah
1: um so my thoughts on it are kind of based on the fact that like i am like a sort of chronic armchair like observer of all of these things and I find them really interesting and I've never quite quite got involved and I feel like that is itself a bad sign like if I haven't quite done it then a lot of people aren't really going to get there and a lot of these you know like the good Matt Dryhurst always says that he needs people to get on board and learn about this stuff because there need to be more people offering like the critique, right? And offering like the perhaps left critique or whatever critique of blockchain, crypto, NFTs, everything. Yes, I agree. And I try my best to keep up so that I can have that critique. Um, Not necessarily criticism, but, you know, critique. And yet I feel that when you have these spaces where you know, being already in the know is getting you into that space, Um, like, two things can happen. One is that it's just simply never going to be accessible enough to actually, like, impact in the way that it thinks it's going to, like, sort of culturally rather than just, like, you know, I mean in terms of, like, trying to do something to do with, like, DAOs and music, let's say, and, and NFTs or whatever. Um, But then again... <sighs> If you are sixteen and you have a kind of interest in this, and you already know how to code and know how to how some of the stuff works, and you're just getting into it, and there are enough other sixteen-year-olds that think that way, and it just happens, then that is potentially a subculture, an underground that can produce its own culture and aesthetics and i will probably miss it or miss that version of it because i'm i'm not on board yet do you know what i mean it's like i don't i think as it stands the problem is that it's it really is quite hard to like get involved in this stuff and get your head around it and that is why we're seeing what we're seeing which is you know broadly speaking like the yeah the late adopters being um like exploited by the early adopters and yeah that's is
0: it's quite a quite a like high like kind of like learning curve into in into this space
1: it it really is it really is and it's just like saying that i i really have followed like crypto stuff for like 7 years at least and i don't even do it do you know what i mean i'm just like i'm interested but i'm like oh just, i can't really and do you know what i feel vindicated <laughs> like i don't give a fuck that i've never like <laughs> been really like bothered in crypto now like it, whatever but I, mean, I am interested in it as, like, a, a, a form of capitalism and as a form of culture. But, yeah, I don't know. I feel like at the moment I can't see what kind of cultural impact it is going to have. But I also think that humans are really, really bad at um, imagining, like, how much things can change in the space of 10 years or 15 years. Um, like, just based on, like, all the things we've talked about in this episode, um, which span a period of, like, 20 to 30 years you just you just don't know and you don't know what like the next load of people are going to be like or are going to know about and yeah so there's my totally useless fence sitting um final word
0: (laughs) no 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 I I I think I I think I'm kind of with you on that I mean uh, Sam and (laughs) I were had the great opportunity of like being able to do like a guest lecture sort of Q&A with a like music business class at like a, a college up in Maine and like You know, so we're talking to, like, maybe 18 or 19-year-olds, and they, like, Mm -hmm. had no fucking clue about, like, any of the Web3 stuff. I mean, they, like, they had heard of it, but they didn't really – they weren't involved in it at all. They were like, so, wait, what's
2: the – Yeah, and I was like, well, this isn't a good sign because they're in a fucking music business class. (laughs) But but at the same time, I'm just thinking about WeSachal and, 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 like, the ways in which that gatekeeping and, like, the high buy-in, like, makes it a subculture (laughs) in a way that, like – I. And I had never, I had never thought of, that's so interesting. And then the question, uh, the follow-up question, you know, is like, like, again, that's like, uh not to be determined here, but, but to be ter- determined by things actually occurring is like, what kind of subculture is it? <laughs> and that's like, the financialized aspects is what makes me uneasy there. Like, everyone getting together and like, figuring out how to like, commodify social exchanges is like not my personal favorite cup of tea, but also, like like you said, like it's a subculture, and it's nice to see those exist in wherever little cracks they can poke out of from the digital ether.
1: We should be grateful for any subculture we can have at this point. And I I think, are you guys on the New Models Discord? The New Models no, Discord? No, I'm not. I'm... I think the New Models Discord is probably a, a fairly peak example of uh, a... You know, web three crypto, et cetera, adjacent, um, discussion sort of area. Uh, they have a podcast and they are, you know, they're, they're affiliated with the kind of, um, the, the Matt and Holly axis, um, loosely. And that discord is kind of amazing. Like it's, um, there are lots of different weird channels about lots of things from like, you know, fashion, but it's all like, Extreme computer music fashion and like, you know, Arcturix or whatever, like weird, weird stuff, or, um, solar punk or, you know, um, yeah, NFTs, but from a very kind of mixed, mixed perspective. I'm sure a lot of people in there know about crypto and Web3 and stuff, but a lot of people are just more like cult- into sort of cultural criticism broadly i mean they're not i don't know can it be a subculture if the average age is probably like 35 maybe not but um (laughs) but 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 the point is that there is an aesthetic um it is very much like millennial extremely online etc but like that is an aesthetic you know that's not that's not nothing um these people are interested in like what they look like as well as (laughs) what they're talking about which that is not that is not a crypto bro and i mean that that means that that means
0: they go outside yeah, if they, look, they care about sure. what they look like that means they go they outside, outside well, They is a good thing.
1: really expensive jackets with loads of zips on them oh yeah i've black, seen these yeah, so, yeah yeah and like trousers and zips zips everywhere
0: Z- zips everywhere <laughs> <laughs> i
1: don't know what the girls are
0: <laughs> and on that note with zips everywhere we'll go ahead and put a, put a bow on this episode <laughs> really appreciate you talking to us and taking the time i know it's been like long coming but uh yeah it was super interesting and like yeah thanks thanks for coming on
1: Thank you so much. Obviously, my top fave podcast. I think you guys are doing a, a great thing and a unique thing. So, yeah, thanks so much.